this week on Dig Me Out. I know, I don't understand the appeal of fretless basses other than showing off how good of a bass player you are. Like, I don't need frets. You and your stupid frets. Tim and Jay Review 001 by Dovetail Joint. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode 234, season 5, for Jason Ziak. Jay? Tim? It is a uh, another episode for us. This is our first non-requested review of the year. You're kidding. No, it's July. Wow. We're finally getting around to an album that we picked. Thank you so much, listeners. And yeah. uh, there's been some, I guess, some round tables and other things in there. But sure. Um, and and the interview episodes where we've talked about albums were not necessarily always like the Paul one was a, a yeah. request review, but we've done some other ones yeah. where they weren't. But uh, this time we're doing an album uh, from the late 90s that you and I are both actually familiar with, but I haven't listened to in a long time. It's. The album is 001 by Dovetail Joint. Mm-hmm. Now, Jay, this is a band I mentioned we're both familiar with. When did you first discover Dovetail Joint? You know, I think this is one of the few bands that I discovered through the radio in the 90s. I think <laughs> it was uh, I think it was when the single hit CD 101 or whoever was playing it at the time. Right. Uh, was it Level on the Inside, I think? That was the first single. And actually, there's, a, there's an interesting history to that song. Um, there's actually, I would say that in terms of bands in the '90s, this is, has a this band has a very interesting and and not um, unfamiliar history in terms of their uh, dealings with record labels and whatnot. Um, I like you heard the single on CD101 here in Columbus, Ohio, and that was my first exposure to the band. And then uh, we had the opportunity to actually play with them, not on the same bill, but at the same music conference around two. 2000 or 2001 at the Midwest Music Conference in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, we played, we either played like the Melody Inn or there was another venue that we played. So we played it two years. I don't remember which year it was. And then they played like a, a venue downtown that was like a converted like art space or restaurant or something. It wasn't really a music venue. It was just like this yeah. big open space that had a bar felt like a hotel lobby or something yeah it was weird so i remember it being very tall yeah like the ceiling yeah. was very tall and uh, i think this was post record label so probably 2000 is the right year but uh, we'll get into that uh let's talk about some history of the band history of the band so Dovetail Joint formed in Chicago, Illinois. The original formation was in 1992, but the actual lineup that we're all familiar with, it took a while for that to come together. So the main lineup that you're familiar with is uh, vocalist Charles Gadfelter on guitar and vocal, um, guitarist Robert Byrne, bassist John Coker, and drummer Joe Dapier, or yeah, I think that's how you say it. Uh, we actually reached out to Charles about being on the show, but this being a holiday weekend, it was a little bit difficult to make the schedules happen. We only had a couple days notice they were going to be doing this episode. So uh, perhaps we'll get Charles on in a future episode. So they released, uh, as I mentioned, they formed in 92, but the lineup sort of came together in 94. And then they released a self-titled 
album um, in 1995 on a local label, and that garnered some major label interest. And this is where things start to get weird. So they got a demo deal with Lava Records in 1997, which basically meant that they were, you know, getting paid to cut some demos. If the label liked them, they would option it for a full length, and if they didn't, they could just walk away with the songs. So they recorded some songs to, for the demo deal, and then they were supposed to go out and meet with the label, essentially. And at the like the last minute, the label just said, nah, never mind, and just cut all ties with the band. Mm-hmm. Later that year, uh, Aware Records, which was an indie in Chicago, um, reached out to Dovetail Joint. And Aware had just signed a deal with Columbia Records for financial support to expand uh, the Aware roster. And they worked out a deal where Dovetail Joint would release their major label debut on Columbia slash Aware. But prior to that, Dovetail Joint would put out a four-song EP exclusively on the Aware label. Sort of, you know, your primer for the for the record. While this was happening, Chicago alternative radio station Q101 was getting submissions from local bands for a, a, compilation, tra- a compilation CD that they were going to put out. And unbeknownst to the band someone either in management or or at the label submitted a song called level on the inside which we both mentioned um and it was chosen to be on the compilation not only it was it was only not only chosen to be on the compilation it was the lead track on the compilation so Mm. the compilation comes out and all of a sudden they're getting played five times a day on q101 in chicago and people were like where's the album where's the album so they bumped up release of the ep and that came out in September of 98, and it became six, the six-song level EP. And then in January of 99, so you're talking about five months later, Columbia and Aware released the album 001. The first single nationally was Level on the Inside, and then Beautiful became the second single. Um, and I think they got to make a video for Level on the Inside. So this is where we get into like the typical sort of 90s story where... So the band goes out, they tour for like eight months, and the label says, uh, get back in the studio and make us a hit record. So they start demoing songs, and the label's like hemming and hawing on whether they're going to pick up the option on their second album. They said, we need to hear more sing, We need to hear more songs. We need to hear more demos. We don't hear any singles yet. We need to hear an obvious radio single. And they write 30 songs for this, and... Uh, keep pushing back on the label like are you gonna pick up the option you can pick up the option they do um and the band is bouncing between studios try the first they were at sound city on california then they were in studio in minnesota trying to get a you know drum sound here and guitar sound there and what have you and the whole thing sort of starts to crumble management is dismissed and um eventually the band over a six-month period legally unwrangle themselves from the contract with Columbia and aware. Um, they start doing showcases to get label interest again, which is probably what they were doing at the Midwest music conference when we saw them. Um, and they also played a, con- a showcase in New York city. Uh, they released their own EP around this time. And, um, that was it. So the band around 2002 ended up disbanding and folks went on to do other things after that. So that's, the history and they've played one show since then uh in 2010 they played a, a reunion show and that was it so that's the history of dovetail joint if you have a suggestion for an album for us to review please visit our 
request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. So I, I that's all from the Wikipedia page, and it's pretty detailed into how what happened with them post uh, major label release. Uh, I don't know if Charles would have had some insight on that. He can chime in, but an email uh, to settle any misconceptions or what have you. We did get some feedback, not on Facebook, but on our uh, website. Steve Frazier says, um, I remember listening to this album when Last FM recommended it. I thought it sounded like most late 90s Midwest, somewhat post-grunge alternative rock music, wanting to get on the Billy Corrigan ship before it went down, and most tracks sound the same. If I sum up this album, it was nothing great or original for many other Midwest bands in the 90s. So Stephen with not necessarily a glowing review of the record. Interesting enough, there is a connection to the Pumpkins. Um, when Jimmy Chamberlain left the Pumpkins because of his drug issues, they brought in, I think it was Matt Walker to play drums. And one of the guys in this band, I believe is like his brother or cousin or so there's some sort of relation between mm. one of the members of the band and one of the, and Matt Walker, the replacement drummer for Pumpkins. So, so there you go. And they're from Chicago as well as the Pumpkins. Hmm. So Jay, let's talk about 001. I try to figure out how I want to Z Z one. As our Canadian friends would say. Yes. Let's talk about this album. You know what? There's only 10 songs, which I want to thank Dovetail Joint for making mm -hmm. a 10-song album in the 90s. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We've, we were tired of the 16 and 17 long yes, albums. Yes, let's, yes, Let's briefly go track by track through this record. I think we could, I think we can do that. Spend a, just a couple minutes on each song and, and get to where we want to go. So let's start with track number one, Beautiful. to kick it off and just say to me uh this is a perfect radio song um it's got a huge hooky chorus great guitar riff it's tight it's concise it's three minutes and 11 seconds i mean it sounds produced and written for for radio and that's perfectly fine for me i want to hear you know a rock radio song that's as good as this nowadays and as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, I know. I like. I hadn't listened to this album in 10, 15 years. I don't know what it's been since I actually busted it out. But as soon as I heard that opening riff, I was like, oh, yeah, I know this song. Yeah, I wasn't sure um, how this was going to hold up. I haven't listened to it in a while myself. But I'm, a, I'm on the same boat as you. As soon as I heard that opening riff, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, that's a cool riff. Okay. And then they get to the chorus. You're like, wow. It's, uh, you're going to hear a lot of choruses here that are kind of, uh, in the motorhead, uh, formula in that they basically take the name of the song and they just repeat it mm -hmm. a lot of times. Yep. Um, you know, they do some stuff to vary that up. Um, in a lot of cases, I'm not sure if this song is, is, is an example of that, but you know, the verses are always strong. I, I don't think there's a, there's a verse on this record that isn't solid. Um, 
this one happens to have a, a great verse and a great chorus. You know, they, they use the, the 90s uh, production tracks of starting small, and then uh, this this song's probably the best example of mm-hmm. busting in, you know, kind of doing a hard edit where the whole band uh, take comes, comes on when the verse kicks in, um, which it works. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a gimmick, but it works. It's effective. It's powerful. They do the uh, the shaker in the chorus, which is always, you know, helps uh, create sense of a, you know, of a chorus. Um, I think what's interesting though is that the the vocal. Uh, we'll talk more about the vocals overall, but the vocal, you know, in the chorus is it's it's okay. Um, it's really the chords underneath that I think make it hooky. It's that mm-hmm. that riff underneath it. And the two together is what really makes it, you know, a big hooky chorus. I think that, you know, the vocal alone, you know, that melody isn't doing a whole lot. Um, it's the, kind of the whole thing together that that makes it work. No, the, the chorus really is driven by the guitar and the, the vocal is almost the counter melody backing mm-hmm. the guitar riff. Um, I do love and I think it's like the second time through the chorus to introduce like some harmonics in mm-hmm. the guitar part. That's really cool. Um, and they do play around with adding some layered vocals with like some high octaves and doubling, interesting doubling that's going on in some of the choruses. And that leads us into track two, Level on the Inside. This is another one that starts with, um, you know, a quieter sound, mm-hmm. you know, quiet and then building up to the. And this is an interesting band or this is an interesting song because it doesn't follow your um, your motorhead <laughs> uh, yeah. approach. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the few on the album that doesn't in that level on the inside, which is the title is actually a verse line. Um, is it a verse or a pre-chorus? I well, like, I guess it's a pre-chorus if you, if you want to get technical, there's a lot of false starts to this song. Like yep. they do a lot of little, there's a little like um, guitar riff that gets used. And then you got that, you know, four in the floor drum part with the, um, quieter guitars the one thing i started to pick up is um it's almost overproduced you know what i mean like there's so much little thing there's so many little things going on that it almost becomes distracting from it being an a straight up you know like rock band or rock song you think so yeah like i started to get like i don't know how to describe it but i was definitely like a little bit distracted by some of the things that were going on that are, and it's more, you'll get into it more in the, um, as we go through the album, but there's just like some, some little little bits of keyboard on it. I think so. And and that appears in some other songs too. Silent treatment, things are only 
pieces of feedback we got was a pumpkins reference. Mm-hmm. I was more thinking hum with the the chorus of this song. Um, just from a guitar standpoint, that guitar tone, just a big, huge, fuzzy, thick tone that I love. I think though, for the most part, I don't hear those bands just because his voice is so different than either of those two bands. Like he doesn't sound anything like Billy Corgan. No. And he doesn't sound like Matt Talbot. So I, I, fr- frankly, I don't think he sounds like anybody. I think that's like, uh, you know, by this song on the record, one of the things that really stands out to me is that vocally, I don't hear anybody else. And, and it's not that his voice is like incredibly unique, but I think just for the 90s, he's not falling into any of the trappings that we, right. we've heard, you know, mm-hmm. that you would hear on the radio. I mean, he's not doing the Eddie Vedder or the Lane Staley or the, he's not even doing like the Jay Mascus or the indie rock kind of, you know, vocal. He's not doing a high pitched falsetto. He, he, the Neil Young, he's not doing any of that. Like he's got a right. unique soulful voice that even though musically, maybe there's moments like the chorus of the song. Yeah. They get heavy, like, a hum song or maybe a pumpkin song, but I don't think the verses sound like either of those two bands. No. So yeah, I don't know. I, this is a, like you said, a great song. It's got a lot of dynamics. It's got yeah. a lot of interesting little bits and parts, um, but it works as a radio, radio single, obviously. They're very good at making you at, at changing the tempo without making it obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of bands would struggle with the quiet, loud, and, you know, breaking away from the Pixies and Nirvana, sort of just playing a heavier chord. Whereas when they're doing that, it's, um, they're shifting the dynamics so much that it almost feels like they're going from halftime to regular time, mm. but they're kind of not. It's a, it's an interesting thing that they do. And, and so graciously said is another example of that where you think that that's going to be like, okay, this is the cool down third track. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, take it down a notch. Yeah, take it down a notch. It's got that. I think it's a piano during the um, during the verse parts. Oh, what is that? I think it it's, sounds like a it sounds like a chiming like dun 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 dun. You know what I mean? During parts, either that or it's a down strummed acoustic or something. I think it might be just a guitar with like a ton of like chorus and stuff. On oh, okay, it, maybe it is. It sounds very. It's like, a very choral kind of choral. Yeah, yeah. And then it just goes explodes in this gigantic, like you said, Motorhead. This might be the first time Motorhead is being invoked when we're talking about <laughs> Dovetail Joint. Uh, but it has that big chorus, and he's repeating the line so graciously said. Um, and this was another one where it, this wasn't a radio single, but as soon as it, I heard that chorus again, I would like snapped back to, oh, okay, I remember listening to this record. Like it was yeah. it's so big and so um, hooky. Even though it's just a simple little chorus that it instantly transports you back to, you know, hearing it for the first time. I like, I love the song. I don't love the chorus in this song. I love the verse. It's almost like to me, the chorus is kind of a little uh, a palate cleanser. <laughs> like really? it sets up, yeah, it kind of sets up the second verse, which gets, uh, I love how the verse is built, first off. Like, I think the way that they, Vocally, he builds it, like keeps getting more, builds up the intensity the way he sings it. But then they also like bring in more instruments and um, 
really build it up. And then the, you get to that chorus, which is, is really simple and it's a huge contrast to what the verses are doing. Then by the time you go to the second chorus, they've taken the whole thing up a notch. So everything about the first verse, first uh, verse is more intense than the second verse from from start to finish. So I just hmm. love that that layering. I mean, the course is fine. It's just right. it's not like uh, it's not what the the part of the song that I like the most. Um, I like the I like it overall, but I mostly I'm liking it because of the verses. On boy, which is track four, they take a little bit of a different approach. They don't start with the quieter you know verse it pretty much you know that this is going to be an up tempo or, or, or mid tempo rock song this is where they i felt like they showed their cheap trick influence just a little bit like you know mm-hmm. guys in chicago probably listened to a lot of cheap trick went to a lot of cheap trick shows you know this is to me that type of energy yeah and it, i think because it's got that like double level chorus where you know he's saying it's just a boy and there's a guitar riff da, da, da. but then he goes to the next part of the chorus which yeah. is a very cheap trick thing to do yeah you, and that go ahead what you, you think you're getting the chorus and then you realize oh it's it's actually hors d'oeuvre before the main chorus <laughs> and that's something that again when i hear comments like oh this is like any other band i don't know any other, a lot of bands in the 90s that would have done something like that Just that subtle, that chorus, like you said, that the third time through goes vocally, at the very least, somewhere else. That's you know pretty sophisticated. Overall, you know the song is it's just a good pop rock song. You know what I mean? It's not, it's big and heavy. And I, I think overall, this whole record, with the exception of maybe two songs, there's just good energy. The tempos are right. Everything seems urgent, even now. You know. All these years later, it still seems um, like they're really on top of it. And this song benefits from that quite a bit. I will say that the, this is the first the first time where I maybe hear a little bit vocally a similarity to somebody and the bridge. He starts to get a little bit of a kind of a sting police kind of sound. Hmm. And I think you hear it more in except when you're late to me. Uh, the police is is the band that I think of most when I hear this song. Well, it has that breakdown that's like, yeah, it could be a a police influenced sort of I mean, riff. Even that that chorus, you know, except when you're late, you know, just that kind of like laid back kind of delivery and mm-hmm. kind of longer line, and I could just hear, I could totally hear Sting singing that.
Yeah, that's and that's an interesting song because it's got that like clean guitar. Um, I think there's some sort of effect on. I don't think it's just clean. Like it almost feels like there's a little bit of like tiny bit of flange or something going on. Yeah, and it's a. Uh, it's interesting. Like the the pattern almost sounds like a loop. I mean, it's not. It's just you know, it's playing guitar, but like the the chords are so. I don't know, the way they're arranged, uh, they almost sound like they could be a loop. Yeah. And there's that, that cool effect on it that kind of brings it all together. But it's the vocal to me. This is one of those cases where, you know, musically, some of the other songs, you know, musically, it's, you know, really holding the song up and making it what it is. But I think this is a case where it's the vocal that's elevating, you know, some average music to something that's pretty good. Yeah, this is one song where, you know, the almost with about a minute left they start to get like real heavy with it and i almost didn't need it to go that way like yeah. I, I would have been fine if this song had been about three minutes and had kept sort of a that groove that you were talking about that's that police groove mm-hmm. um with the vocal and stuff maybe you know try uh, some variations on it but at the end they you know rock it out which is fine i'm sure that was fun live too but um i, I didn't necessarily need it to need to be there I agree. I mean, I don't dislike the heavy part, but I totally see where you're going in terms of they don't need to do that all the time. Like, they can be heavy. They can rock out. They can use big, thick guitars. But they can also do this kind of stuff pretty well, too, which Mm -hmm. becomes, you know, kind of a cleaner, more melody-focused, more uh, even rhythm-focused kind of song, which is they can pull that off. Now, track six, Here We Are. Tempo-wise, it sort of picks right up where, except when you're late was. Yeah, it does. Kind of staccato riff. Like, it almost sounds like they were written at the same time. Because that, like, the riff in, except when you're late, is like, do-do-do-do. And then there's, like, the, here we are, is like, dar-dar-dar-dar. Like, they, you know what I mean? They have a kind of similar feel to the two of them. I don't know, maybe they weren't written, but. If the guitars were less heavy, again, that verse I could totally hear is a, a police song. And the, the second guitar player in the band, Robert Byrne, uh, he does a lot of little interesting things with effects that weren't being done in the 90s. You know, a, a lot of guitar players sort of abandon anything beyond like a wah or a phaser. Um, but he's messing around with like, like on this song and when you get to the second verse... There's like some sort of a, I'm not exactly sure what it is. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like around the minute mark or minute 10 mark. Um, It almost sounds like a tremolo. Yeah. um, Yeah. But it's also kind of being like phased or something. Like it's not just a tremolo that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's a tremolo that's panning, but it's it's an extreme like, you know, it's it's really cutting the volume a lot. I think that is a good and bad thing. I do like the use of effects on the record. Um, They use them basically um, in place of guitar leads and guitar solos, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's a part of the song where other bands would have probably have done some kind of guitar lead. Right. But instead, they they pick an effect and use that to, to create interest in those spaces. I like it. I also wonder what it would sound like if this band did more guitar leads and more guitar solos. I might actually like it a little bit more. I mean, I like 
this record quite a bit, but um, that stood out to me as a, a record that's very guitar oriented, but it's not guitar lead oriented or guitar solo oriented. Well, which is, which is weird because it's not like they're just playing power chords. I mean, the music's complex um, and it's very, I mean, complex isn't the right word, but you know, they're, they're good musicians. It's very tight. It's, it's got a lot of movement to it. Mm -hmm. A lot of chords. There's complexity in some of it. I just wonder if what it would have sounded like if some of these bridges and sort of, you know, end of first choruses into the first second verse, if, if there was guitar leads and solos in those spots. Maybe they were taking the Saint Anger approach and didn't want to do any guitar solos. <laughs> well, yeah. Keep, keep it more pure. I mean, there were a lot of, yeah, I mean, obviously this is a time when guitar solos and leads weren't the coolest thing in the world, but in hindsight now that there's not that stigma. Yeah. I'm wondering if it would have worked. Let's go to track seven. Um, oh my God. I kind of feel like this is the the WTF track for me. <laughs> so let me give you a little background. Okay. I have the the EP, or I'm sorry, it must be their debut album. Sure. This is called Dovetail Joint. Yeah. This is the only song from that record to make this record. Okay. And when you listen to the original version, it definitely sounds like um, 90s grunge, especially if you think of that chorus. Like imagine slowing it down just a couple beats and you kind of take the propulsion out of it a little bit and make it a little bit more laid back. It's a very much a seven Mary three kind of riff. Right. Um, yeah. It's not a, it's not a particularly inventive riff. Yeah. So that's, I think they did a good job. If you listen to this two songs, you're going to be probably impressed that they were able to tweak it and make it work as well as it does. But I agree that it's, it's the weakest song on the record. It's just that those, those verses are just, with that, like, I don't know, that, is that a fretless space? I think that so, belongs yeah. on like <laughs> yep. a jazz album from. Mm -hmm. Well, now we've reviewed a lot of '90s records that had fretless bass on it. I know. I don't understand the appeal of fretless basses other than showing off how good of a bass player you are. Like, I don't need frets. You and your stupid frets. I just don't. It just doesn't work for me. That sa that sound just doesn't work for me. Yep. It always it always sounds so like it sticks out, and I to me the bass is a complementary instrument, not a stick it out in front and yeah make it make it in a an obvious. the The original was like the guitar riff was more um, broken, so it was like den and and it den and and it den and and it den and 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 then so the bass was like boom, 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 like trying to connect that together and carry the okay. melody. Well, so that part actually makes a little more sense. But then the chorus of the this version is much better than the chorus on the old version. But overall, gotcha. it's just not a great song. If this was what the whole record was like, the it's their typical, you know, late '90s radio rock band. I would totally get, but. This is the only song I think for them, to me that fits that definition. Right. So then track eight, I guess, is the ballad for the for the album. And that's afraid. Mm. 
great chorus. It's a little bit understated during the first verse, and you're kind of like, where is this going? Yeah, but when they when you get through the whole thing and they get to the third verse, he takes the you know, they keep that melody, but he takes the delivery up. He gets out of the whisper. Yes. They add piano, and the whole thing just elevates and has a lot more emotion and it comes together. Like you it the beginning makes more sense then. They pay off that melody more um with the third verse and how they deliver it. Uh, with the full vocal and, and piano and whatnot. It, it kind of remind me a little bit at the beginning of, you know, of, of a Jeff Buckley kind of thing or mood. Mm-hmm. I can hear that. Um, it's it's not necessarily a, a Buckley esque chorus, but the mood. The verse. Yeah, the the verse that that mood is definitely in that vein. Yeah. Um, I, I see what they're going for because you know he's kind of whispering it in the first verse, in the second verse he's he's not singing full throat like he is in the third, but it's sort of in between. Mm-hmm. I guess I just needed a little bit more in that second verse to, I don't know, keep me as interested as some of the other songs. What um, do you think of the uh, use of the keys and whatnot in this? It gets pretty lush. Yeah, and I think that there's, maybe it's guitar, but there's like a swirling sort of, I don't know, it could be an organ or a synth pad or something like that, but there's some stuff going on as well that's like sort of mid-rangey keyboard sounding stuff that's not the key not the piano that's what i mean there's like yeah there's an organ or stringy kind of i'm not quite sure what the patch or sound is but i'm glad they didn't go with the obvious like let's bring a cello or a string section to like make it overly dramatic yeah you know that like some bands would have done and and really made it melodramatic Mm -hmm. instead of just dramatic so i appreciate they could have gone in a very schmaltzy direction that would have been um, tough to deal with. Yeah. Track nine. This is my home. This is basically the last rocker on the album. I think it's on par with, you know, some of the the other earlier songs in terms of the, of it being up tempo. It's got a little more groove to it though. It's got kind of almost like a funk soul kind of yeah, underbelly it's, going on. It's a little uh, unexpected in that sense that if you. Uh, if you give this to Chris Robinson, I'm sure he could turn it into a Black Crows song. <laughs> uh, but it but works it, for them. Yeah, it doesn't sound like blatantly off. It's just no. like it's kind of like, oh, this is an up-tempo rocker. And then when you really listen, you're like, oh, this kind of grooves. What's going on here? Like there's a definite, it's a less of a, a driving hard rock sound, a little bit more pulled back and you can you can almost dance to it kind of thing and it, it matches his vocal wall which i think is again um particularly for this era very soulful without yeah. being like trying to be soulful if that right. makes sense like it just sounds authentic like this is his voice he's not doing some ridiculous 
you know, over the top affect or something. He's just, this is the way he sings. And it just happens to be, um, you know, in that range that makes it seem that way. I'd be interested to uh, break down the songs a little bit and just see what like keys they're playing in. If they're, if they're utilizing similar keys from song to song, or if this is a bit different than some of the other ones, cause he's singing a bit higher. Yeah. So like higher than beautiful say, or, mm-hmm. or live on the inside. But uh, this takes us to the last track lullaby, which is uh, easily the longest song on the record. It's the only one that even goes over the, six minute mark there's not even one that goes over the five minute mark before this this to me sounds i I feel like i can hear the shoegaze smashing pumpkins hum influence in this song um it's got some weird effects it's got the big slow sort of dirgy chorus that's real heavy and then it goes on for a while at the end with just sort of like noise yeah Uh, I think, though, again, the vocal is so different than any of those bands that it's mm-hmm. at, at first listen, you don't realize it. You're just, oh, this is kind of an interesting sound. Like it sounds accessible, commercial, but there's something about it that's a little bit deep, you know, deeper. And when you listen to closer, you're like, oh, wow. And he thought his vocal is pretty much a shoegaze song, could be a hum song um, with a different singer. Right. Which I think is kind of cool. Now you mentioned that you listen to the you have the f- the first album that's self-titled. Mm-hmm. How much of what we heard in this album do you hear the roots of it in that first album or is it a, a, a very different band? It's in the ballpark. It's just it's a little uh, I would I would consider it a little more typical 90s. Okay. Um it's it's less uh big. It's less urgent sounding. It's not quite as crisp, and in this song, every song is tight, and you know gets to the point. The formats are get a little predictable, but you know they're edited well, presented well. Um, mm-hmm. The first album, the songs are all a little longer, you know, not quite as together. Right, you know, guitar tones are like fuzzier, like in a you know less of a thick wall guitar sound, more of a you know, either clean guitar or fuzzy sound. Gotcha. So if you go, there's a Bandcamp page set up for Dovetail Joint where you can listen to the EP that they released after this. And then they also put up nine demos from the sessions that were aborted for their follow-up album. And they're only demos, so they're not completed songs. So you're getting some like, you know, some songs are only like a minute and a half. You can tell that they were still working on mm-hmm. some stuff. But you can tell that they were, you know, writing in this same vein, writing tight pop rock songs, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were also doing some some different things that made me think that, you know, that could have been some interesting stuff. Like there was the the first track is called, I think it's called Vertigoing. And... It's just that like line repeated over and over again over this like building guitar riff. It's an interesting experiment. I don't know what if that if that would have turned into a full song, or what what the deal was. But it's it kind of reminded me of um, not in this the feel of it, but just in the approach to the song of like teenage fan clubs. What you do to me, hmm. which is you know essentially that's just like two lines that whole song. Yeah. 
it, it kind of has that same sort of approach. Or um, or Feel Good Head of the Summer by Queens of the Stone Age, where they're just like, it's just one thing repeated over and over again, but you build the, you change the music underneath it, building it and stuff like that. So um, if you're interested from what we've talked about on this record, you want to go check it out, you can stream it on the, on the Bandcamp page along with some of their other music. Um, I think this is available on Spotify. Yeah, this it, is because it's still owned by Columbia. Yeah, it's on all the music services. Gotcha. So, Jay, let's talk about our overall ratings for this record. Were the album better EP or decent single? Where are you at? Oh, I'm in a worthy album. Uh, yeah, I like this album a lot. Um, really, uh, oh my god, and maybe lullaby. I could do without, but I mean, honestly, it's ten songs. It's and they're all. Most of them are three minutes or less, so it's a worthy album to me. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much with you exactly the same. Oh my god, is the is the lone misstep on this record? I really think that people should give it a chance. I understand if it was the late '90s and you heard this, you you might have been burnt out by listening to all the alternative rock that was being pumped out by the major labels. But I think if you go back and listen to this, you're going to discover that this is a little bit more interesting than you might have realized the first time around. It you know, for some people, it might be too slick, too radio friendly, and that's entirely up to you. But I think if you listen to the song construction and the way that these tracks are put together, um, I think they're a lot more interesting than maybe they realized on first time, you know, giving it a shot. Yeah, I don't think – see, I come from this – from the thought of like I love – let's just say the band home, right? I love that band. I love the sound of that band. I want more. I would like to listen to more music that sounded like them. I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So if you could give me like five or six other bands that were in that ballpark, but maybe had a slightly different take on it, like different vocal style, maybe different kind of song arrangements, whatever, kind of mix it up a little bit. But they're all, you know, they could all tour together. I would think that's a great thing. So to me, you know what I mean? Like, if 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 the knock on or, or say pumpkins same thing like you could replace what I just said with smashing pumpkins like I think that's a good thing like I I like that band and I would want to hear more music like it mm-hmm. um, I don't use that as something that as a negative um, that they're not different enough um, I don't really I don't know I'm into good not different right so I think this is a, a really well done um, you know commercial oriented hard rock record. We we didn't have a ton of those in the '90s, believe it or not. A lot of the crap that was on the radio, beyond the first the the single that was on the radio, was was not very good. No, nope, I agree with you. People people look back and see certain things that they want to see, but not everything was as as interesting as uh, it appeared at the time. And I ever remember like uh, remember, uh, going back to you talked about the show that we played with them. Um, I remember there being some people from Chicago there and they were kind of like, oh, Dovetail Joints playing. Oh, like they were like the uncool band at that point. Or, and we were like, really? We think they're amazing. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm sure it's just because they had been at this point. It was probably what, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe whatever. They had overstayed their welcome in the scene or whatever, but it was sort of even their people from the city that at least we talked to were not uh, thrilled about the band playing. 
which we thought was crazy. Right. And you never know what sort of backstage, you know, back home politics, music. There's always music scene politics. So we, we had no ideas about or no, you know, there is in, insight into that stuff. So all we were doing was listening to music and deciding whether we liked it or not. Yeah, right. That was kind of my point. It was like, oh, yeah. OK, but the record was great. So that's two worthy albums for Jay and uh, myself. And if you have an album that you'd like us to check out, please head on over to our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. And as always, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over on iTunes. Um, That's it for uh, Jay. I'm Tim, and we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Right. The